Support U.S. and get exclusive gift, reports and docs become a patron. True information is the most valuable resource and we ask you to give back. HTTP colon slash slash www.burnpulch.org The only website with a license to spy. Police Light, follow us on Telegram and Gab for even more above top secret infos and documents. HTTPS colon slash slash t.me slash above top secret Right pointing finger, join at above top secret HTTPS colon slash slash gab.com slash burn HTTPS colon slash slash rumble.com slash embed slash v1kmkj4 slash question mark pub equals 4. The text reads as follows. Quote. Circumcised boys can no longer masturbate. Totally wrong. Circumcised boys can masturbate as well as uncircumcised boys. Most of the time, they just have to change their technique. About every fifth boy in Germany is circumcised. This means that his foreskin was shortened during an operation so that his glands is permanently exposed. The main reason for circumcision for most people was a foreskin narrowing, famosus, which caused pain when the foreskin was pulled back. Few can be circumcised because they simply like a penis without a foreskin. Where the rumor comes from Most guys masturbate by grasping their penis and pushing the foreskin back and forth. But what if there are no foreskins left to slide back and forth? For some there is obviously only one consequence, then it doesn't work anymore with masturbation. Not correct. The truth is. Every boy can satisfy himself, whether with or without a foreskin. So that the hand can slide over the sensitive penis shaft even without a foreskin, many boys use some body lotion or lubricant. Since a circumcised boy can no longer irritate the glands by pushing the foreskin back and forth, he performs the stimulating hand movements up to the glands. This is usually a little less sensitive for guys without a foreskin. One thing is clear, after circumcision, every man has to get to know his little friend again and try out how he reacts to rubbing or petting. So if it doesn't work as lustily as it did before circumcision, don't despair. After a circumcision surgery, it may take a few months for you to get used to the new situation. Until then, just try and practice. Girls masturbate with their fingers in their vagina. It does not work that way. Sure, you can do that. But if you want to reach orgasm, it doesn't work that way. Where the rumor comes from? Probably because many girls and boys do not know that a woman inside the vagina is not particularly excitable. The pleasure center of the woman is not the vagina, but her clit, the clitoris. And that is not in the vagina, but outside, between the labia, towards the navel, where the inner labia meet. The truth is, a woman usually comes to orgasm when she rubs her clit. Trying to masturbate a girl by shoving her finger in her vagina and moving it back and forth may make her feel pleasant, but she doesn't get to climax this way. But if she stimulates her clit and the area around it, it is much more exciting for her. Incidentally, it is the same with intercourse. Few women come to orgasm simply through the in-out movements of the penis and the vagina. Most also need to stimulate their clitoris with their hands in order to reach their climax. Rumor, boys come quickly, girls slowly. Right, at least mostly. Men often come before women during sex. Where the rumor comes from. Anyone who has had sex with a partner knows this from their own experience. But men's previous orgasm has nothing to do with male lust or impatience. And the later orgasm of women is not due to less lust or a messed up sexuality. The truth is. Much easier. 
Men are just more excitable than women. Women need more time to orgasm. There are biological reasons for this. In young men, this is mainly due to the high concentration of sex hormones. Add to that the excitement and the lack of experience of how you can control your arousal yourself. That is why it happens again and again that a boy comes as soon as he touches his penis. But it doesn't have to be that way. Every man can learn to delay his orgasm a little without effort. Why that makes sense, because then he can enjoy his lust longer. But if a girl does not reach climax for a long time or not at all despite exertion, this is usually due to another reason, then, when she masturbates, she does not or only insufficiently stimulates her pleasure center, the clitoris. The fact is, everyone can learn to control their arousal themselves. Whether someone comes quickly or takes ages to come depends above all on how well they know their body and its sexual reactions. Who knows where and how he is particularly excitable can quickly get his satisfaction or extend the enjoyment of his excitement as long as possible. This applies to girls as well as boys. Tip, sometimes an orgasm takes more than just a few clever manipulations on the penis or vulva. Because as you know, lust arises in the head. If you shoot an exciting love scene with your dream partner in your fantasy while masturbating, this will also fuel your physical pleasure. So you get to the climax faster. Masturbation is harmful to your health. Not correct. The opposite is the case, masturbation is good for you as long as you don't overdo it and injure yourself. Where the rumor comes from. Another rumor that only pursues one goal. Forbid young people from masturbation. And why? Because sex, like that? The Catholic Church still sees it today, have only one goal. Should make children. So one has put evil illnesses in masturbation. It's supposed to make you crazy and soften your brain. The body should. Leech out and lead to consumption. Complete nonsense. The truth is. Masturbation is healthy. Masturbation relaxes you emotionally and. Physically. Many girls and boys satisfy themselves to stress and excitement. To dismantle and concentrate on one task again. Whoever. Regularly satisfied, even prevents various diseases. Research has even shown that people who are self-satisfied. Live longer. What masturbation is good for. With masturbation you learn your body, its sensitivity and yours. No sexual preferences. Only when you know where you are particularly excitable. And you know your body and your sexual preferences well, you can too. Show your partner which tenderness excites you and which tend to excite you. Turn off. This is a prerequisite for having good and satisfying sex. To have. Masturbation is immoral. Whether that's right or wrong, that is. Matter of opinion. Because morals are different. We say. Masturbation is absolutely not immoral. Where the rumor comes from. Every time has its moral ideas. That would still be in the early 19th century. Dr. Summer team has been beheaded for his info pages for masturbation. Even in the middle of the 20th century there would have been jail for this. And still. 30 years ago, issues of youth magazines were censored because there. Masturbation has been described as normal and morally harmless. The truth is. Whether masturbation is moral or immoral is a matter of opinion. In. In a pluralistic society like ours there are different ones. Opinions about whether something is morally acceptable or immoral. Depending on who you ask, you will get different answers. Almost all. 
Educators, psychologists, doctors and scientists keep masturbation. Today for a perfectly normal part of a healthy sex life. On the other hand, masturbation is still considered in some religious contexts. Sentenced immorally. That's the way it is in a democracy. But the fact is, almost all people. Satisfy yourself. Some more, some less. And even those. Those who don't are perfectly fine. Masturbation is part of healthy sexual development. 2. This is the only way you can know the sexual reactions of your body. Learn and recognize what is good for you and what is not. So you have to find out for yourself. What attitude you want to take for masturbation. The best way is. If you just try it out for yourself. You don't need yourself for that. To be ashamed. Too much masturbation can be addictive. No. But some can after. Relaxation and the addiction to happiness become addictive, which is the masturbation. Triggers. Where the rumor comes from. People can be addicted to many things, addicted to love, to television. Or computer games, after cigarettes, alcohol, tablets or illegal. Drugs, addicted to work, recognition or jealous. Clear. That you can become addicted to masturbation. But that's the way it is. It's not easy. It is worth taking a closer look. When are you addicted to? Masturbation? If you do it every day? Or at least three times? Day? Or more often? It is not the frequency that is decisive, but the frequency. Intent that is associated with masturbation. Do you do it all the time because you avoid all stress and problems? Want, it becomes a problem in the long run. Then you use masturbation. To run away from your everyday problems. It can become a kind of addiction. But do you do it because you enjoy the feeling and SB makes your life happier and makes you more relaxed, then it has nothing to do with addiction. Not even if you do it several times a day for a while. The truth is, masturbation makes you happy in the short term. This is because the masturbation in the body happiness hormones that are released provide special well-being and relaxation at short notice. Sure, you always want that. Especially when this pleasure is still quite new. Then it may well happen that someone happens several times a day. Masturbated to get the quick feeling of happiness. But, the happiness hormones for the quick kick are also distributed when someone falls in love or a has a special sense of achievement. And most quickly realize that they are to get that good feeling in a different way. That is why the danger is through. Becoming addicted to too much masturbation, very little. Sexuality is a basic need. Sexuality is one of the basic human needs, such as eating and drinking. Or sleeping. That is why it is natural when someone wants to have sex. Or has masturbation. That is why the desire for sex is particularly special among young people. Great because sex is something new for them that arouses their special curiosity. Obviously you want to do it as often as possible. In addition, the production of sex hormones are particularly high during puberty. That means that the desire for lustful activity is stronger in adolescence than in adult. But since most still don't have a sex partner, they keep them busy. Yourself all the more intensely with yourself. This is completely normal. That also has. Don't look for anything to do. 
Masturbation is especially the boys. Not correct. That has changed a long time ago. Our survey on Bravo.net more than 16,000 girls and almost 14,000 boys resulted in 96% of the boys and 82% of the girls satisfy themselves. At the latest since the beginning of the emancipation movement in the late 1960s. In the past century, many realized what has long been a matter of course is, women also have sexuality. And regardless of the men, where the rumor comes from. It may sound strange today. But for a long time, the sexuality of women determined by men's sexual needs. This also resulted in that women hardly cared for their own bodies sexually. Only gradually did women discover their own sexual needs and learn that they feel lust even without intercourse with a man. Can. In fact, a survey in the mid-1960s found that there were only about every fifth woman, 20%, has satisfied herself. The more confident women learn to deal with their sexuality, the more interest developed. She also at masturbation. The truth is, today almost as many girls, 82%, masturbate as boys, 96%. One and only difference, boys do it more often than girls on average. And, don't masturbate. Only teenagers. Other surveys among adults conclude. At least 90% of all men and about 75-80% to 80% of all women satisfy themselves. Self. After 1,000 shots it's over. Not correct. Behind this hoax is the idea that a boy is in the puberty, when the testicles start producing sperm, once with sperm cells. Fully fueled. From then on, he must keep his sperm supply. Organize. Because that is supposedly only enough for about 1,000 ejaculations. This is, of course, nonsense. The male body produces sperm for life. Some guys already have ejaculations after one or two. Two years. If the rumor was true, they would be 15 or older. 16 unable to produce. So all nonsense. Feedback Gaben. Bearlauf. Jess Peachert. Community. Where the rumor comes from. The rumor started at the beginning of the 19th century. Of industrialization. People should focus on their work. And do not waste their power unnecessarily during sex. Therefore sit down. Scientists, churchmen and doctors rumor in the world that everyone. Ejaculation irretrievable energy to the body. Deprives. So masturbation became more valuable as a senseless squandering. Branded physical energy that must be prevented by all means. Although this is nonsense, this rumor has spread to the population in some places. Kept until today. The truth about ejaculation. The sperm never go out. The testicles take them at the beginning of puberty. Production of sperm. From this point on, the testes produced up to 1,000 sperm cells per second. That is almost 900 millions of sperm cells a day. With every effusion only about 80 to flow. 200 million sperm cells. A daily production is enough for many ejaculations. But, if you have a longer one, periods of masturbation several times a day are the sperm cells in the epididymis and sometime empty in the seminal vesicles because more is used up is being reproduced as can 
This causes the sperm content in your semen to decrease. You can recognize this by the fact that your effusion is then more transparent and somewhat overall. Becomes less. This goes on until you take a masturbation break. Within. From 4 to 5 days the camps are packed again. In contrast to women, where the production of egg cells in the menopause. Stops, a healthy man produces sperm for life. So you go. Never out. You get pimples from masturbation. Not correct. That is also one. False report of the worst variety that has only one purpose, youngsters from. Stop masturbating. The common thing about this rumor, it. Holds. Many still believe in it. Because many young people who. Masturbate, actually have pimples. But they come from somewhere else. Where the rumor comes from. Until the 1980s, the claim was that there was. A connection between acne and masturbation, particularly common. This is why generations of young people were doubly ashamed. On the one hand for their blemished skin, on the other hand for the fact that the pimples are said to be. Was the visible evidence of their dirty lifestyle. That. The rumor has persisted with some grandparents, parents and their children to this day. Has, is that masturbation is still an issue for many today. Is a taboo subject. That means, hardly anyone talks about it. The truth is. You don't get pimples from masturbating. They are a result of hormone changes. Of the body in puberty. At the beginning of puberty sets in boys and girls. The production of sex hormones. As a result of the hormone change comes. In many adolescents there is cornification and inflammation of the skin pores. The result, pimples develop. That with the start of production of sex hormones. Most teenagers also feel like masturbation. Nothing to do with the development of pimples and acne. Wanking makes the penis crooked. Not correct. Have curvatures of the penis. Nothing to do with masturbation. Where the rumor comes from. Rubbing your penis to orgasm every day, sometimes even a few times. In a row, that must leave traces. There are many of them. Young people are convinced. Because, so many believe, there is a penis. Usually straight. That's not true. The truth is. No penis gets crooked from too much masturbation. Whether limp or stiff. No penis is straight. No matter whether your stiff penis is left or. Right, curved up or down. Or whether he was having an erection. Above, below or something to the side shows, all of these are neither malformations nor. The consequences of excessive masturbation. These are normal variations of the. Nature. You do not need to be ashamed of it and can easily have sex with it. To have. Where penile curvatures come from. For the stiffening of the penis there are three erectile tissues running in parallel. Responsible. Two of them run on the top of the penis, the third dash. Which also surrounds the urethra, in the middle of the bottom. When aroused, the erectile tissue fills with blood and stiffens it. Penis. Is one of the erectile tissue a little shorter than the others, what? Is often the case, then the penis bends slightly during an erection. This direction. This way you can bend in all possible directions. Occurrence. It has nothing to do with masturbation. Only singles do masturbation. Not correct. Masturbation is one. Very own form of sexuality, 
which you never quite through partner sex can replace. End of the quote. Below is the profile of Sirocco alias Klaus Morischat, the author of these lines. The birthday is identical to that of Klaus Morischat, while Morischat was born on December 4, 1956, Sirocco was exactly nine years younger. And the imprint is identical to that of Gamopa.net. The member list. Administrator is Sven Schmidt. And there is the user Gigafull. Look up. In 2013 Morris Jat used the alias Sirocco. Here are the server details. Server IP. 67.23.163.246 Server location. Lockport. NY14094 United States. Domain name, demopa4kids.net. Registrar, godaddy.com incorporated. Who is server? Who is .godaddy.com? Referral URL, http colon slash slash registrar.godaddy.com. Name server, ns57.domaincontrol.com. Name server, ns58.domaincontrol.com. Status, client, delete, prohibited. Status, client, renew, prohibited. Status, client, transfer, prohibited. Status, client, update, prohibited. Updated date, September 17, 2009. Creation date, July 2, 2009. Expiration date, July 2, 2011. Become a patron. True information is the most valuable resource and we ask you to give back. Worse than the Gestapo. Simon Wiesenthal, Nazi hunter said about the notorious Stasi. Less than a month after German demonstrators began to tear down the Berlin Wall on November 9, 1989, irate East German citizens stormed the Leipzig district office of the Ministry for State Security, MFS, the Stasi, as it was more commonly called. Not a shot was fired, and there was no evidence of street justice as Stasi officers surrendered meekly and were peacefully led away. The following month, on January 15, hundreds of citizens sacked Stasi headquarters in Berlin. Again there was no bloodshed. The last bit of unfinished business was accomplished on May 31st when the Stasi radioed its agents in West Germany to fold their tents and come home. The Intelligence Department of the National Volksarmy, NVA, the People's Army, had done the same almost a week earlier, but with what its members thought was better style. Instead of sending the five-digit code groups that it had used for decades to message its spies in West Germany, the army group broadcast a male choir singing a children's ditty about a duck swimming on a lake. There was no doubt that the singing spymasters had been drowning their sorrow over losing the Cold War in schnapps. The giggling, word-slurring songsters repeated the refrain three times, dunk your little head in the water and lift your little tail. This was the signal to agents under deep cover that it was time to come home. With extraordinary speed and political resolve, the divided nation was reunified a year later. The collapse of the despotic regime was total. It was a euphoric time for Germans, but reunification also produced a new national dilemma. Nazi war crimes were still being tried in West Germany, 46 years after World War II. Suddenly the German government was faced with demands that the communist officials who had ordered, executed, and abetted crimes against their own people, crimes that were as brutal as those perpetrated by their Nazi predecessors, also be prosecuted. The people of the former Deutsche Demokratische Republik, DDR, the German Democratic Republic, 
as the state had called itself for 40 years, were clamoring for instant revenge. Their wrath was directed primarily against the country's communist rulers, the upper echelon of the Sozialistische Einheitspartei, SED, the Socialist Unity Party. The tens of thousands of second echelon party functionaries who had enriched themselves at the expense of their co-citizens were also prime targets for retribution. Particularly singled out were the former members of the Stasi, the East German secret police, who previously had considered themselves the shield and sword of the party. When the regime collapsed, the Stasi had 102,000 full-time officers and non-commissioned personnel on its rolls, including 11,000 members of the ministry's own special guards regiment. Between 1950 and 1989, a total of 274,000 persons served in the Stasi. The People's Eye was running equally strong against the regular Stasi informers, the Inefizielle Mitarbeiter, IMS. By 1995, 174,000 had been identified as IMS, or 2.5% of the total population between the ages of 18 and 60. Researchers were aghast when they found that about 10,000 IMS, or roughly 6% of the total, had not yet reached the age of 18. Since many records were destroyed, the exact number of IMS probably will never be determined, but 500,000 was cited as a realistic figure. Former Colonel Reiner Wiegand, who served in the Stasi Counterintelligence Directorate, estimated that the figure could go as high as 2 million, if occasional stool pigeons were included. The Stasi was much, much worse than the Gestapo, if you consider only the oppression of its own people, according to Simon Biesenthal of Vienna, Austria, who has been hunting Nazi criminals for half a century. The Gestapo had 40,000 officials watching a country of 80 million, while the Stasi employed 102,000 to control only 17 million. One might add that the Nazi terror lasted only 12 years, whereas the Stasi had four decades in which to perfect its machinery of oppression, espionage, and international terrorism and subversion. To ensure that the people would become and remain submissive, East German communist leaders saturated their realm with more spies than had any other totalitarian government in recent history. The Soviet Union's KGB employed about 480,000 full-time agents to oversee a nation of 280 million, which means there was one agent per 5,830 citizens. Using Wiesenthal's figures for the Nazi Gestapo, there was one officer for 2,000 people. The ratio for the Stasi was one secret policeman per 166 East Germans. When the regular informers are added, these ratios become much higher. In the Stasi's case, there would have been at least one spy watching every 66 citizens. When one adds in the estimated numbers of part-time snoops, the result is nothing short of monstrous, one informer per 6.5 citizens. It would not have been unreasonable to assume that at least one Stasi informer was present in any party of 10 or 12 dinner guests. The Stasi Octopus Like a giant octopus, the Stasi's tentacles probed every aspect of life. Full-time officers were posted to all major industrial plants. Without exception, one tenant in every apartment building was designated as a watchdog reporting to an area representative of the Volkspolizei, Vopo, the People's Police. In turn, the police officer was the Stasi's man. If a relative or friend came to stay overnight, it was reported. Schools, universities, and hospitals were infiltrated from top to bottom. German academe was shocked to learn that Heinrich Fink, professor of theology and vice-chancellor at East Berlin's Humboldt University, had been a Stasi informer since 1968. After Fink's Stasi connections came to light, he was summarily fired. Doctors, lawyers, journalists, writers, actors, 
and sports figures were co-opted by Stasi officers, as were waiters and hotel personnel. Tapping about 100,000 telephone lines in West Germany and West Berlin around the clock was the job of 2,000 officers. Stasi officers knew no limits and had no shame when it came to protecting the party in the state. Churchmen, including high officials of both Protestant and Catholic denominations, were recruited en masse as secret informers. Their offices and confessionals were infested with eavesdropping devices. Even the director of Leipzig's famous Thomas Church Choir, Hans Joachim Rach, was forced to resign when he was unmasked as a Spitzel, the people's pejorative for a Stasi informant. Absolutely nothing was sacred to the secret police. Tiny holes were bored in apartment and hotel room walls through which Stasi agents filmed their suspects with special video cameras. Even bathrooms were penetrated by the communist voyeurs. Eight, like the Nazi Gestapo, the Stasi was the sinister side of Deutsche Grundlichkeit, German thoroughness. After the Berlin Wall came down, the victims of the DDR regime demanded immediate retribution. Ironically, their demands were countered by their fellow Germans in the West who, living in freedom, had diligently built Einen Demokratischen Rechtsstaat, a democratic state governed by the rule of law. The challenge of protecting the rights of both the victims and the accused was immense, given the emotions surrounding the issue. Government leaders and democratic politicians recognized that there could be no quick fix of communist injustices without jeopardizing the entire system of democratic jurisprudence. Moving too rapidly merely to satisfy the popular thirst for revenge might well have resulted in acquittals or mistrials. Intricate jurisdictional questions needed to be resolved with both alacrity and meticulousness. No German government could afford to allow a perpetrator to go free because of a judicial error. The political fallout from any such occurrence, especially in the East, could prove fatal to whatever political party occupied the chancellor's office in Bonn at the time. Politicians and legal scholars of the old federal states, or West Germany, counseled patients, pointing out that even the prosecution of Nazi criminals had not yet been completed. Before unification, Germans would speak of Vergangenheitsbewaltigung, coming to grips with the past, when they discussed dealing with Nazi crimes. In the reunited Germany, this word came to imply the communist past as well. The two were considered comparable especially in the area of human rights violations. Dealing with major Nazi crimes, however, was far less complicated for the Germans, Adolf Hitler and his Gestapo and Schutzstaffel, SS, Chief, Heinrich Himmler, killed themselves, as did Luftwaffe Chief and Vice-Chancellor Hermann Göring, who also had been the first chief of the Gestapo. The victorious allies prosecuted the rest of the top leadership at the International War Crimes Tribunal in Nuremberg. Twelve were hanged, three received life terms, four were sentenced to lesser terms of imprisonment, up to 20 years, and three were acquitted. The cases of communist judges and prosecutors accused of Rexbugung, perversion of justice, are more problematic. According to Franco Workenthin, a Berlin legal expert charged with analyzing communist crimes for the German parliament, those sitting in judgment of many of the accused face a difficult task because of the general failure of German justice after World War II. Not a single judge or prosecutor who served the Nazi regime was brought to account for having perverted justice, even those who had handed down death sentences for infringements that in a democracy would have been considered relatively minor offenses. Workenthin called this phenomenon die Jauke der Justiz, the cesspool of justice. Of course, the crimes committed by the communists were not nearly as heinous as the Nazis' extermination of the Jews, or the mass murders in Nazi-occupied territories. However, 
The communist brutal oppression of the nation by means including murder alongside legal execution put the said leadership on a par with Hitler's gang. In that sense, Walter Ulbricht or Erich Honecker, Ulbricht's successor as the party's secretary-general and head of state, and secret police chief Erich Mielke can justifiably be compared to Hitler and Himmler, respectively. Arrest warrants were issued for Honecker and Mielke. The Soviet government engineered Honecker's escape to Moscow, where he became the ward of Soviet President Mikhail S. Gorbachev. When the Soviet Union crumbled, the new Russian president Boris Yeltsin expelled Honecker. He was arrested on his return to Germany, but a court decided against a trial when he was diagnosed with liver cancer. Honecker flew to Chile with his wife Margot to live with their daughter, a Chilean citizen by marriage. His exile was short, and he died in 1994. Milky was not so fortunate, his KGB friends turned their backs on him. He was tried in Germany for the 1931 murder of two police officers, found guilty, and sentenced to six years in prison. Other charges, including manslaughter, were dismissed because of his advanced age and poor health. Three other members of the 21-member ruling Politburo also had been tried. Former Defense Minister Heinz Kessler was convicted of manslaughter in connection with the order to kill people who were trying to escape to the West. He received a seven-and-a-half-year term. Two others, members of the Central Committee and the National Defense Council, were tried with Kessler and sentenced to seven-and-a-half years and five years, respectively. Politburo member Harry Tisch, who was also head of the Communist Trade Union, was found guilty of embezzlement and served 18 months. Six others, including Egon Krentz, Honecker's successor as party chief, were charged with manslaughter. Krentz was found guilty, and on August 25, 1997, was sentenced to six and a half years in prison. However, eight years after reunification, many of the 165 members of the Central Committee have not yet been put under investigation. In 1945, Nazis holding comparable or lesser positions were subject to automatic arrest by the Allies. They spent months or even years in camps while their cases were adjudicated. Moreover, the Nuremberg Tribunal branded the Reich and its core of political leaders, SS, Security Service, SD, Secret State Police, Gestapo, SA, Stormtroopers, and Armed Forces High Command criminal organizations. Similarly sweeping actions against communist leaders and functionaries such as Stasi officers were never contemplated, even though tens of thousands of political trials and human rights abuses have been documented. After the East German regime fell, German judicial authorities scrupulously avoided the appearance of waging witch hunts or using the law as a weapon of vengeance. Prosecutors and judges made great efforts to be fair, often suspending legal action while requesting rulings from the Supreme Court on possible constitutional conflicts. The victims of oppression clamored for revenge and demanded speedy prosecution of the erstwhile tyrants. They had little patience for a judicial system that was handicapped by a lack of unblemished and experienced criminal investigators, prosecutors, and judges. Despite these handicaps, the Berlin Central Police Investigations Group for Government Criminality, mindful that the statute of limitations for most communist crimes would expire at the end of 1999, made significant progress under its director Manfred Kitlaus, the able former director of the West Berlin State Police. Kitlaus's major task in 1998 was to investigate wrongful deaths, including 73 murders, 30 attempted murders, 583 cases of manslaughter, 2,938 instances of attempted manslaughter, and 425 other suspicious deaths. Of the 73 murders, 22 were classified as contract murders. 
One of those tried and convicted for attempted contract murder was former Stasi collaborator Peter Hawk, who was sentenced to six and a half years in prison. The 52-year-old Hawk took part in the Stasi's 1981 Operation Scorpion, which was designed to pursue people who helped East Germans escape to the West. Proceedings against former General Gerhard Neighbor, whose Stasi directorate was responsible for preventing escapes and for wreaking vengeance, were still pending in 1998. Peter Hawk's murder plot was hatched after he befriended Wolfgang Welsh and his family. Welsh was a thorn in the side of the Stasi because of his success in smuggling people out of the DDR. Hawk joined Welsh and the latter's wife and seven-year-old daughter on a vacation in Israel, where he mixed a gram of thallium, a highly poisonous metallic chemical element used in rat poison, into the hamburgers he was preparing for a meal. Welsh's wife and daughter vomited immediately after ingesting the poison and recovered quickly. Welsh suffered severe after-effects, but eventually recovered, he had consumed a large amount of beer with the meal and an expert testified that the alcohol had probably flushed the poison from his system. Berlin Prosecutor General Christoph Schafkin revealed that after the DDR's demise 15,200 investigations had been launched, of which more than 9,000 were still active at the beginning of 1995. Indictments were handed down in 153 cases, and 73 perpetrators were convicted. Among those convicted were the aforementioned Politburo members as well as a number of border guards who had killed people who were trying to escape to the West. Despite widespread misgivings about the judicial failures in connection with some Nazi crimes, a number of judges and prosecutors were convicted and jailed for up to three years for perversion of justice. In collusion with the Stasi, they had requested or handed down more severe sentences in political cases, but that the state could collect greater amounts when the convicts were ransomed by the West German government. The amount of ransom paid was governed by the time a prisoner had been sentenced to serve. The enormity of the task facing judicial authorities in reunified Germany becomes starkly evident when one examines the actions they have taken in all five former East German provinces and in East Berlin. From the end of 1990 to July 1996, 52,050 probes were launched into charges of murder, attempted murder, manslaughter, kidnapping, election fraud, and perversion of justice. A total of 29,557 investigations were halted for various reasons including death, severe illness, old age, or insufficient evidence. In those five and a half years, there were only 139 convictions. The problem is even more staggering when cases of espionage are included. Between 1990 and 1996, the Office of the Federal Prosecutor General launched 6,641 probes, of which 2,431 were terminated before trial, most due to the statute of limitations. Of 175 indictments on charges of espionage, 95 resulted in convictions. In addition to the cases handled at the federal level, the Prosecutor General referred 3,926 investigations to state authorities, who terminated 3,344 without trial. State courts conducted 356 trials, resulting in 248 convictions. Because the statute of limitations for espionage is five years, the Prosecutor General's office told me in 1997 it was unlikely that more espionage trials would be conducted. It is important to emphasize the difference between the statute's application to so-called government crimes committed in East Germany before the collapse and to crimes, such as espionage, committed in West Germany. The Unification Treaty specifically permits the belated prosecution of individuals who committed acts that were punishable under the East German Criminal Code and who due to official connivance were not prosecuted earlier. 
There is no statute of limitations for murder. For most other crimes the limit is five years, however, due to the obstacles created by previous government connivance, the German parliament in 1993 doubled this time limit for prosecution of the more serious crimes. At the same time, the parliament decreed that all cases must be adjudicated by the end of 2002. For less serious offenses, the statute would have run out on December 31, 1997, but the parliament extended it to 2000. A number of politicians, jurists, and liberal journalists pleaded for a general amnesty for crimes committed by former DDR leaders and Communist Party functionaries. A former West German Supreme Court judge, Ernst Rundholz, said the sharp sword of justice prevents reconciliation. Schafkin, the Berlin Prosecutor General, had this answer for the former High Court judge and other amnesty advocates. I cannot agree. We are raising no special, sharp sword against East Germans. We must pursue state-sponsored injustice in exactly the same manner as we do when a thief steals or when one human being kills another. If one wants to change that, then we would have to do away with the entire criminal justice system, because punishment always hurts. We are not criminalizing an entire people but only an ever-shrinking, small portion. German Foreign Minister Klaus Kinkel, who was West Germany's Minister of Justice when the nation was unified, said this at a session of parliament in September 1991, we must punish the perpetrators. This is not a matter of a victor's justice. We owe it to the ideal of justice and to the victims. All of those who ordered injustices and those who executed the orders must be punished, the top men of the set as well as the ones who shot, people, at the wall. Aware that the feelings against communists were running high among their victims, Kinkel pointed to past revolutions after which the representatives of the old system were collectively liquidated. In the same speech before Parliament, he said, Such methods are alien to a state ruled by law. Violence and vengeance are incompatible with the law in any case. At the same time, we cannot tolerate that the problems are swept under the rug as a way of dealing with a horrible past, because the results will later be disastrous for society. We Germans know from our own experience where this leads. Jewish philosophy formulates it in this way, the secret of redemption is called remembering. Defense attorneys for communist officials have maintained that the difficulty lies in the fact that hundreds of thousands of political opponents were tried under laws of the DDR. Although these laws were designed to smother political dissent and grossly violated basic human rights and democratic norms, they were nonetheless laws promulgated by a sovereign state. How could one justly try individual Stasi officers, prosecutors, and judges who had simply been fulfilling their legal responsibility to pursue and punish violators of the law. Opinions varied widely on whether and how the Stasi and other perpetrators of state-sponsored crimes should be tried. Did the laws of the DDR, as they existed before reunification, still apply in the East? Or was the criminal code of the western part of the country the proper instrument of justice in reunified Germany? However, these questions were moot, as Rupert Schultz, professor of law at the University of Munich and a Christian Democratic member of parliament, pointed out, the Unification Treaty specifies that the penal code of the DDR and not that of the Federal Republic of Germany, FRG, shall be applied to offenses committed in East Germany. Schultz's view was upheld by the Bundesverfassungsgericht, the Supreme Court. Most offenses committed by party functionaries and Stasi officers, murder, kidnapping, torture, illegal wiretapping, mail robbery, and fraud, were subject to prosecution in reunified Germany under the DDR's penal code. 
But this would not satisfy the tens of thousands of citizens who had been sent to prison under East German laws covering purely political offenses for which there was no West German equivalent. Nevertheless, said Schultz, judicial authorities were by no means hamstrung, because West Germany had never recognized the East German state according to international law. We have always said that we are one nation, that the division of Germany led neither to full recognition under international law nor, concomitantly, to a recognition of the legal system of the DDR, Schultz said. Accordingly, West German courts have consistently maintained that West German law protects all Germans equally, including those living in the East. Therefore, no matter where the crimes were committed, whether in the East or the West, all Germans have always been subject to West German laws. Applying this logic, East German border guards who had either killed or wounded persons trying to escape to the West could be tried under the jurisdiction of West Germany. The one-nation principle was not upheld by the German Supreme Court. Prior to the court's decision, however, Colonel General Marcus Wolf, chief of the Stasi's Foreign Espionage Directorate, and some of his officers who personally controlled agents from East Berlin had been tried for treason and convicted. Wolf had been sentenced to six years in prison. The Supreme Court ruling overturned that verdict and those imposed on Wolf's cohorts, even though they had obtained the most closely held West German secrets and handed them over to the KGB. The maximum penalty for Lansferat, or treason, is life imprisonment. In vacating Wolf's sentence, the court said he could not be convicted because he operated only from East German territory and under East German law. However, Wolf was reindicted on charges of kidnapping and causing bodily harm, crimes also punishable under East German law. The former Stasi three-star general, on March 24, 1955, had approved in writing a plan to kidnap a woman who worked for the U.S. mission in West Berlin. The woman and her mother were tricked by a Stasi agent whom the woman had been teaching English, and voluntarily got into his car. He drove them into the Soviet sector of the divided city, where they were seized by Stasi officers. The woman was subjected to psychological torture and threatened with imprisonment unless she signed an agreement to spy for the Stasi. She agreed. On her return to the American sector, however, the woman reported the incident to security officials. Wolf had committed a felony punishable by up to 15 years imprisonment in West Germany. He was found guilty in March 1977 and sentenced to two years probation. Those who have challenged the application of the statute of limitations to communist crimes, especially to the executions of citizens fleeing to the West, have drawn parallels to the notorious executive orders of Adolf Hitler. Hitler issued orders mandating the summary execution of Soviet army political commissars upon their capture and initiating the extermination of Jews. An early post-war judicial decision held that these orders were equivalent to law. When that law was declared illegal and retroactively repealed by the West German Bundestag, the statute of limitations was suspended, that is, it never took effect. Many of those convicted in subsequent trials of carrying out the Fuhrer's orders were executed by the Allies. The German Supreme Court has ruled the same way as the Bundestag on the order to shoot people trying to escape to West Germany, making the statute of limitations inapplicable to such cases. The ruling made possible the trial of members of the National Defense Council who took part in formulating or promulgating the order. A number of border guards who had shot would-be escapees also have been tried and convicted. Chief Prosecutor Heiner Sauer, former head of the West German Central Registration Office for Political Crimes, was particularly concerned with the border shootings. His office, located in Salzgitter, West Germany, was established in 1961 as a direct consequence of the Berlin Wall, 
which was erected on August 13 of that year. Willie Brandt, at the time the city's mayor, later federal chancellor, had decided that crimes committed by East German border guards should be recorded. At his behest, a central registry of all shootings and other serious border incidents was instituted. Between August 13, 1961 and the opening of the borders on November 9, 1989, 186 border killings were registered. But when the Stasi archives were opened, investigators found that at least 825 people had paid with their lives for trying to escape to the West. This figure was reported to the court that was trying former members of the National Defense Council. In addition to these border incidents, the registry also had recorded a number of similar political offenses committed in the interior of the DDR. By fall 1991, Sauer's office had registered 4,444 cases of actual or attempted killings and about 40,000 sentences handed down by DDR courts for political offenses. During the early years of Sauer's operation, the details of political prosecutions became known only when victims were ransomed by West Germany or were expelled. Between 1963 and 1989, West Germany paid DM 5 billion, nearly 3 billion US dollars, to the communist regime for the release of 34,000 political prisoners. The price per head varied according to the importance of the person or the length of the sentence. In some cases the ransom amounted to more than 56,000 US dollars. The highest sum ever paid to the East Germans appears to have been DM 450,000, 264,705 US dollars using an exchange rate of 1 US dollar and 70 cents to the mark. The ransom object in this case was Count Benedict von Honsbroek. A student in his early 20s, von Honsbroek was attending a West Berlin university when the wall went up. He was caught by the Stasi while trying to help people escape and was sentenced to 10 years at hard labor. The case attracted international attention because his family was related to Queen Fabiola of Belgium who interceded with the East Germans. Smelling money, the East German government first demanded the equivalent of more than one million U.S. dollars from the young man's father as ransom. In the end, the party settled on the figure of DM 450,000, of which the West German government paid DM 40,000, about $23,529. Such ransom operations were fully controlled by the Stasi. Political prisoners released in the DDR could not be registered by the West Germans because their cases remained secret. The victims were admonished to keep quiet or face another prison term. Nonetheless, in the first year after reunification, Sauer's office added another 20,000 documented cases, for a total of 60,000. Sauer said he believed the final figure of all political prosecutions would be somewhere around 300,000. In every case, the Stasi was involved either in the initial arrest or in pretrial interrogations during which confessions were usually extracted by physical or psychological torture, particularly between the mid-1940s and the mid-1960s. Until 1987, the DDR imposed the death penalty for a number of capital crimes, including murder, espionage, and economic offenses. But after the mid-1950s, nearly all death sentences were kept quiet and executions were carried out in the strictest secrecy initially by guillotine and in later years by a single pistol shot to the neck. In most instances, the relatives of those killed were not informed either of the sentence or of the execution. The corpses were cremated and the ashes buried secretly, sometimes at construction sites. In reporting about one executioner who shot more than 20 persons to death, the Berlin newspaper Bildzeitung said that a total of 170 civilians had been executed in East Germany. However, Franco Werkenthin, 
the Berlin official investigating DDR crimes, said he had documented at least 300 executions. He declined to say how many were for political offenses, because he had not yet submitted his report to Parliament. But it was substantial, he told me. The true number of executions may never be known because no complete record of death sentences meted out by civil courts could be found. Other death sentences were handed down by military courts, and many records of those are also missing. In addition, German historian Gunter Buch believes that about 200 members of the Stasi itself were executed for various crimes, including attempts to escape to the West. Safeguarding Human Dignity? The preamble to the East German Criminal Code stated that the purpose of the code was to safeguard the dignity of humankind, its freedom and rights under the aegis of the Criminal Code of the Socialist State, and that a person can be prosecuted under the Criminal Code only in strictest concurrence with the law. However, many of the codified offenses for which East German citizens were prosecuted and imprisoned were unique to totalitarian regimes, both fascist and communist. Moreover, certain sections of the code, such as those on treasonable relaying of information and treasonable agent activity, were perversely applied, landing countless East Germans in maximum security penitentiaries. The victims of this perversion of justice usually were persons who had requested legal exit permits from the DDR authorities and had been turned down. In many cases, their crime was having contacted a Western consulate to inquire about immigration procedures. Sentences of up to two and a half years hard labor were not unusual as punishment for such inquiries. Engaging in propaganda hostile to the state was another punishable offense. In one such case, a young man was arrested and prosecuted for saying that it was not necessary to station tanks at the border and for referring to border fortifications as nonsense. During his trial, he admitted to owning a television set on which he watched West German programs and later told friends what he saw. One of those friends had denounced him to the Stasi. The judge considered the accused's actions especially egregious and sentenced him to a year and a half at hard labor. Ironically, another part of this section of the criminal code decreed that glorifying militarism also was a punishable offense, although the DDR itself glorified its people's army beyond any Western norm. That army was clad in uniforms and insignia identical to those of the Nazi Wehrmacht, albeit without eagles and swastikas. The helmets, too, were differently shaped, but the Prussian goose step was regulation during parades. A 19-year-old who had placed a sign in an apartment window reading when justice is turned into injustice, resistance becomes an obligation, was rewarded with 22 months in the penitentiary. Earlier, the youth had applied for an exit visa and had been turned down. A 34-year-old father of two who also had been denied permission to leave the workers and peasants' state with his family similarly advertised that fact with a poster reading we want to leave, but they won't let us. The man went to prison for 16 months. The crimes of both men were covered by a law on interference in activities of the state or society. Two letters, one to a friend in West Germany, seeking assistance to legally emigrate to the West, and another containing a similar appeal to Chief of State Honecker, brought a four-year sentence to their writer, who was convicted under two laws, those on establishing illegal contacts, writing to his friend, and on public denigration, writing to Honecker. The Stasi had illegally intercepted both letters. The East German party chiefs were not content to rely only on the Stasi's millions of informers to ferret out anti-state sentiments. Leaving nothing to chance, they created a law that made the failure to denounce fellow citizens a crime punishable by up to five years' imprisonment. One man was sentenced to 23 months for failing to report that a friend of his was preparing to escape to the West. 
The mandatory denunciation law had its roots in the statutes of the Socialist Unity Party, which were published in the form of a little red booklet. I picked up a copy of this booklet that had been discarded by its previous owner, a Stasi chauffeur, who had written Ha, Ha next to the mandate to report any misdeeds, regardless of the person responsible, to leading party organs, all the way up to the Central Committee. Rupert Schultz, member of parliament and professor of law at the University of Munich, said many East Germans feel there is little determination among their Western brethren to bring the Stasi criminals to trial. In fact, we already have heard many of them say that the peaceful revolution should have been a bloody one instead so they could have done away with their tormentors by hanging them post-haste, Schultz told me. The Reverend Joachim Gauck, minister to a Lutheran parish in East Germany, shared the people's pessimism that justice would be done. Following reunification, Gauck was appointed by the Bonn government as its special representative for safeguarding and maintaining the Stasi archives. We must at least establish a legal basis for finding the culprits in our files, Gauck told me. But it will not be easy. If you stood the millions of files upright in one line, they would stretch for 202 kilometers, about 121 miles. In those files you can find an unbelievable number of Stasi victims and their tormentors. Gauck was given the mandate he needed in November 1991, when the German parliament passed a law authorizing file searches to uncover Stasi perpetrators and their informants. He viewed this legislation as first step in the right direction. With the evidence from Stasi files, the perpetrators could be removed from their public service jobs without any formal legal proceedings. Said Gauck, we needed this law badly. It is not reasonable that persons who serve this apparatus of oppression remain in positions of trust. We need to win our people over to accepting that they are now free and governed by the rule of law. To achieve that, we must build up their confidence and trust in the public service. Searching the roughly 6 million files will take years. A significant number of the dossiers are located in repositories of the Stasi regional offices, sprinkled throughout eastern Germany. To put the files at the Berlin Central Repository in archival order would take one person 128 years. The job might have been made easier had the last DDR government not ordered the burning of thousands of Stasi computer tapes, ostensibly to forestall a witch hunt. Thousands of files dealing with espionage were shredded and packed into 17,200 paper sacks. These were discovered when the Stasi headquarters was stormed on January 15, 1990. The contents of all of these bags now have been inspected. It took two workers between six and eight weeks to go through one bag. Then began the work of the puzzlers, putting the shredded pieces together. By the middle of 1997, fewer than 500 bags of shredded papers had been reconstructed, into about 200,000 pages. Further complicating matters was the lack of trained archivists and experts capable of organizing these files, to say nothing of the 37.5 million index cards bearing the names of informers as well as persons under Stasi surveillance, and interpreting their contents. Initially, Funding for a staff of about 550 individuals was planned, at a total of about DM 24.5 million annually, about 15 million US dollars using an exchange rate of 1 US dollar and 60 cents. By 1997, the budget had grown to 137 million US dollars, and the staff to 3,100. Stasi victims and citizens who had been under surveillance were allowed to examine their Stasi files. Within four years of reunification, about 860,000 persons had asked to inspect their case files, with 17,626 of those requests being received in December 1994 alone. By 1997, 
3.4 million people had asked to see their files. Countless civil suits were launched when victims found the names of those who had denounced and betrayed them, and many family relationships and friendships were destroyed. The rehabilitation of Stasi victims and financial restitution to them was well underway, but Gap believed that criminal prosecution of the perpetrators would continue to be extremely difficult. We can already see that leading said functionaries who bear responsibility for the inhumane policies, for which they should be tried, are instead accused of lesser offenses such as corruption. It is actually an insult to democracy that a man like Harry Tisch is tried for embezzlement, and not for being a member of the Politburo, where the criminal policies originated. The Stasi Files Law, as it is popularly known, also made it possible to vet parliamentarians for Stasi connections. Hundreds were fired or resigned, and a few committed suicide, when it was discovered that they had been Stasi informants. Among those who resigned was Lothar de Maizière, the last premier of the DDR, who signed the unification agreement with West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. He was a member of the East German version of the Christian Democratic Union, which like all non-communist parties in the Eastern Bloc had been totally co-opted by the regime. After reunification, he moved into parliament and was awarded the vice-chairmanship of Kohl's Christian Democratic Union. A lawyer, de Maizière had functioned for years as an M, an informer, under the cover name Cerny. De Maizière at first denied he was Cerny, but the evidence was overwhelming. It was de Maizière's government that had ordered the destruction of the Stasi computer tapes. The Communist Political Survival De Maizière, who had been a driving force behind prompt reunification, soon passed into oblivion, but 20 members of the old Communist Party, the SED, are still members of Parliament. The SED changed its name in late 1989, when the DDR was collapsing, to the Party of Democratic Socialism, PDS. Its new leadership arrogantly dismissed their bloody past as irrelevant now that the word democratic had been adopted as part of their party's name. If the elections of summer 1990 had taken place just a few months later and thus had been conducted under the law of reunified Germany, these individuals would not have won parliamentary seats. The West German electoral rules governing the proportional representation system require that a party garner at least 5% of the vote before it may enter parliament. In addition to choosing a party, voters cast a second ballot for a specific person. This is called a direct mandate. If any party falls below 5% but gets at least three direct mandates, that party is seated in parliament. As a one-time compromise in consideration of East Germany's smaller population, the Bonn government accepted a 3% margin of party votes. Even so, the PDS barely made it into parliament. In the 1994 general election, the first after reunification, the party polled 4.4%. Had it not been for the votes electing four persons by direct mandate, the PDS would have been excluded. The direct mandates all came from East Berlin districts heavily populated by unemployed, former Communist Party and government officials. One of the men elected directly was Gregor Gysi, a communist lawyer who had been accused of informing on his clients to the Stasi. Gysi denied the allegations and had obtained a temporary injunction barring a former East German dissident from making the assertion. However, a Hamburg court lifted the injunction in December 1994 on the basis of Stasi documents that indicated Gysi had no case. Another candidate directly elected to parliament was Stefan Heim, a German-born writer who had emigrated to the United States after Hitler came to power, had changed his name from Helmut Fleek, and had become a U.S. citizen. He served in the U.S. Army as an officer during World War II, but switched sides in 1952 to live in East Germany, forfeiting his U.S. citizenship, 
in order to become an East German citizen and a member of the Communist Party. A year later, on June 17, 1953, the East German people rose up in a revolt that was crushed by the Red Army. Had it not been for the intervention of the Soviets, Heim wrote afterward in the communist daily newspaper Berliner Zeitung, the American bombing would have already begun. The shots against the rebels were fired to prevent war, rather than begin one. And when Stalin died, just four months earlier, Heim used the same newspaper to mourn the butcher of an estimated 20 million people as the most loved man of our times. Finally, in a speech on January 31, 1995, at a demonstration marking the 62nd anniversary of the Nazi takeover, the unrepentant Heim, now 82 years old, had the gall to say that the present climate in Germany was very similar to that in 1933, and this frightens me. It was a grotesque spectacle when Heim was accorded the honor of delivering the opening address of the 1965 parliamentary session traditionally reserved for the body's oldest member. Despite vehement protests, parliamentary president Rita Zusmit ruled to uphold the tradition. One of the PDS members also retaining his seat was Hans Madro. Madro, a veteran communist, was said district secretary in Dresden. It was a most powerful communal political position. Madro was a vital cog in the apparatus of state repression. The local Stasi chief, Major General Horseboom, reported directly to him. Madro was the one who ordered the Vopo, the People's Police, to resort to violence and putting down massive protests during the turbulent days in fall 1989, just before the Berlin Wall fell. Hundreds of protesters were severely beaten and jailed. Boom, the Dresden Stasi boss, was found shot dead in his office in early 1990, just before he was to appear before a commission that had been convened to settle the future of the communist state. His death was listed as a suicide. However, an unsubstantiated rumor has it that he was murdered to prevent him from testifying about Madro's despotic rule. Madro was found guilty of election fraud in May 1993. The DDR hierarchy, according to the evidence, had ordered that the number of votes opposing the official slate in the 1989 election had to be fewer than in 1985. Madro reported that only 2.5% of the ballots in his district were cast in opposition, but the true number was at least four times higher. The judge issued him a mere rebuke, refusing to imprison or fine him. The federal high court, which reviews sentences, ordered in November 1994 that Madro stand trial again because the sentence was too mild. After a new trial in 1996 on charges of perjury, Madro was sentenced to six months probation. A year later, Parliament was still considering whether he should be deprived of his seat. Unlike the Nazi Party's finances and property, which were confiscated by the victorious allies and turned over to the first West German government in 1949, the said's millions were inherited by the PDS, which spirited part of those funds out of the country when the East German government collapsed. The PDS also became custodian of the archives of the said and refused anyone outside the party access to them. Shortly after reunification, in 1990, the courts ruled that the archives were state property. Judicial authorities as well as scholars were permitted to research them. Nevertheless, the said archives were almost lost. In 1994, the German news magazine Focus discovered a letter dated March 1991, sent by Gregor Gysi in the capacity of PDS party chief to Vladimir A. Ivashko, assistant secretary general of the Soviet Union's Communist Party. In this letter, Gysi pleaded with Soviet leaders either to put pressure on German Chancellor Helmut Kohl to return the archive to the PDS, or if Kohl felt this was politically impossible, to destroy it. The opening of the archive, Gysi wrote, 
was a genuine catastrophe, because it contained many secret documents. Publication of the documents would have extremely unpleasant results not only for the PDS but for the Communist Party of the Soviet Union as well, Gizzi wrote. But his Soviet friends were no longer able to help him. The archive holds documents on Politburo decisions and directives that might prove crucial in prosecuting the former East German Party hierarchy. In the end, the PDS offered to settle for 20% of the SED's ill-gotten funds, forfeiting the rest as a gesture of goodwill toward the new state. Not all observers were impressed by this compromise. Peter Goweiler, Bavaria's Minister for Development and Ecological Affairs at the time of reunification, and a member of the Christian Democratic Party, demanded that the PDS and the Deutsche Kommunistische Partei, DKP, the West German Communist Party, be outlawed. Every month we learn of new crimes committed by the said, terrible things, gruesome things, Goweiler said. We cannot tolerate a successor organization to such an extremely criminal gang. Now it seems the Stasi is back again in business after transforming it into the cyber-Stasi of the 21st century. The serial betrayer and cyber-stalker Klaus Morisjad is on the run again. The latest action against him, see below, caused him to react in a series of fake statements and press releases, one more absurd than the other. Insider analyzed that his criminal organization Gomopa is about to fade away. On our request the German criminal police, Kriminalpolizei, has opened new cases against the notorious Gomopa organization which already fled in the underground. Insiders say they have killed German journalist and watchdog Heinz Gerlach and their criminal record is bigger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. The case is also directed against Google, Germany, while supporting criminal action of Gomopa for years and therefore give them the chance to blackmail successful businessmen. This case is therefore an example and will be followed by many others as far as we can project. Furthermore we will bring the case to the attention of the German lawyers community which will not tolerate such misconduct by Google's German legal representative Dr. Arndt Haller and we will bring the case to the attention of Google Incorporated in Mountain View, USA, and the American Ministry of Justice to stop the cyberstalkers once and for all. Besides that many legal institutions, individuals and firms have already contacted us to help to clarify the death of Mr. Heinz Gerlach and to prosecute his murderers and their backers. The case number is street 2011 In a series of interviews beginning 11 months before the sudden death of German watchdog Heinz Gerlach Berlin lawyer Josken Resch unveiled secrets of Gerlach, insiders say. Secret documents from Mr. Gerlach's computer were published on two dubious hostile German websites. Both have a lot of similarities in their internet registration. One the notorious GoMopa website belongs to a N-Eastern German organization which calls itself. Numerous attempts have been made to stop our research and the publication of the stories by GoMopa members in camouflage thus confirming the truth and the substance of it in a superior way. Only two articles let the German audience believe that the famous journalist and watchdog Heinz Gerlach died on natural courses by blood pollution. The first one, published only hours after the death of Mr. Heinz Gerlach by the notorious Gomopa, see article below, and a second three days later by a small German local newspaper, Weserbergland Nachrichten. Many people including the hostile Gerlach website Acta Heinz Gerlach doubted that this man who had so many enemies and friends would die of natural causes without any previous warning. Rumors occurred that Mr. Gerlach's doctor doubted natural courses at all. After many critical voices discussed the issue a small website of a small German local newspaper, 
which never before had reported about Mr. Heinz Gerlach and which is not even in the region of Mr. Gerlach's home, published that Mr. Gerlach died of blood pollution. Weserbergland Nockerston published a long article about the deadly consequences of blood pollution, and did not even name the source of such an important statement. It claimed only that somebody of Gerlach's inner circle had said this. It is a proven fact that after the culpace of the Eastern German communist regime many former communist propaganda agents went to regional newspapers, often in Western Germany like Gunter Schabowski did the man who opened the Mauer. The theater stage was set, one day later the Hostel Gerlach website Acta Heinz Gerlach took the agenda publishing that Mr. Gerlach had died for natural causes without any further research at all. This was done by a website which for months and months and months reported everything about Mr. Gerlach. Furthermore a research proves that the technical details regarding the website hosting of this hostile website Acta Heinz Gerlach proves that there are common details with the hosting of Gomopa and their affiliates as proven by the SJB Gomopa victims, see http colon slash slash Insiders believe that the murderers of Mr. Heinz Gerlach are former members of the Eastern German terror organization Stasi with dioxins. They also believe that Gomopa was part of the plot. At Gomopa a person named Siegfried Sewers was officially responsible for the press but never appeared in public. Gomopa victims say that this name was a cameo for Gomopa frontrunner Klaus Morisstadt who is controlled by the Stasi top agent Ehrenfried Stelsner, Berlin. Siegfried Sievers, a former Stasi member is responsible for the pollution of millions Germanys for many years with dioxins. This was unveiled at 5th of January 2011 by German prosecutors. The victims say that Morisstadt, probably also a Stasi cameo, and Sievers were in contact as Sievers acted as Stasi agent, and was in fact already a specialist in dioxins under the communist terror regime in eastern Germany. Furthermore the Stasi top agent Ehrenfried Stelzer disguised as professor for criminal studies during the communist regime at the Eastern Berlin Humboldt University. Background The man behind the Berlin lawyer Johann Resch and his activities is Ehrenfried Stelzer, former Stasi top officer in Berlin and professor for criminal studies at the Eastern Berlin Humboldt University during the communist regime, the SJB Gomopa victims say, www.sjbfaopfa.com, is responsable for the killing of German watchdog and journalist Heinz Gerlach. These information stem from various sources who were close to the criminal organization of Gomopa in the last years. The SJB Gomopa say that the well-known German watchdog and journalist Heinz Gerlach was killed by former Stasi members with dioxins. Polychlorinated dibenzodioxins, PCDDs, or simply dioxins, are a group of organic polyhalogenated compounds that are significant because they act as environmental pollutants. They are commonly referred to as dioxins for simplicity in scientific publications because every PCDD molecule contains a dioxin skeletal structure. Typically, the p-dioxin skeleton is at the core of a PCDD molecule, giving the molecule a dibenzo-p-dioxin ring system. Members of the PCDD family have been shown to bioaccumulate in humans and wildlife due to their lipophilic properties, and are known teratogens, mutagens and confirmed, avered, human carcinogens. They are organic compounds. Dioxins build up primarily in fatty tissues over time, bioaccumulate, so even small exposures may eventually reach dangerous levels. In 1994, the US EPA reported that dioxins are a probable carcinogen, but noted that non-cancer effects, reproduction and sexual development, immune system, may pose an even greater threat to human health. TCDD, 
the most toxic of the dibenzodioxins, is classified as a group 1 carcinogen by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC. In 2004, a notable individual case of dioxin poisoning, Ukrainian politician Viktor Yushchenko was exposed to the second largest measured dose of dioxins, according to the reports of the physicians responsible for diagnosing him. This is the first known case of a single high dose of TCDD dioxin poisoning, and was diagnosed only after a toxicologist recognized the symptoms of chloracne while viewing television news coverage of his condition. German Dioxin Scandal In January 2011 about 4,700 German farms were banned from making deliveries after tests at the Harl Unchensch plant in the state of Schleswig-Holstein showed high levels of dioxin. Again this incident appears to involve PCBs and not PCDDs at all. Dioxin were found in animal feed and eggs in many farms. The person who is responsible for this, Siegfried Sievert is also a former Stasi agent. At Gomopa the notorious Eastern Berlin Press Agency, see article below, one of the henchmen acted under the name of Siegfried Sievert. Further evidence for the killing of Mr. Heinz Gerlach is provided by the SJB Gomopa victims by analyzing the dubious role of former Stasi top agent Ehrenfried Stelzer also a former professor for crime studies under the communist regime in eastern Germany and the dubious role of Detective Mendar Fuschgruber. Both are closely tied to the dubious Gomopa and Berlin lawyer Johann Resch. According to the SJB Gomopa victims is Berlin lawyer Johann Resch the mastermind of the criminal organization Gomopa II. The victims state that they have a source inside Gomopa who helped them discover the shocking truth. The so-called deep throat from Berlin has information that Resch had the idea to found the criminal organization Gomopa and use non-existing Jewish lawyers named Goldman, Morgenstern and partners Camouflage. Their office in Madison Avenue, New York, is a mailbox. This is witnessed by a German expatriate, a lawyer, whose father, Heinz Gerlach, died under strange circumstances. Resch seems to use Gomopa as an instrument to blackmail parts of the German property and investment section email address. Subscribe.